I want to thank my sponsor, Viva. Viva, thank you so much for making this show possible. Viva is here to change the game. They have electronic regulatory documents for sites for free with no commitment, no contract. I just signed up my site, Yuma Clinical Trials. No contract needed, nothing signed. They they just approve your email address and that's it. You're up and running with an electronic regulatory system, which is a great way if you haven't gotten into electronic anything yet. You need to consider it. It's it's free. Over 450 sponsors are using Viva for their backend stuff. Electronic signatures here, electronic uh, delegation of authorities log, all for free. Viva is going to keep giving sites free stuff because they're very site-centric. They they know that if they help empower the sites, even more sponsors are going to use their paid products on their end. They are the sponsors after all, so they pay for things. And they understand that making sites take control of their electronic systems is a huge first step. It's a huge commitment for sites, even for something that's free. And they're here to make it easy, and they're playing the long game. And anyways, go check it out underneath the video or the show notes below. Viva Site Vault. Thank you, Viva. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. My name is Dan Svera. My co-host, Chris Sauber, here. Uh, We also have a very special guest, Chuck Rinker from Personas. And... We're going to get into exactly what this company is doing. It's forefront innovation in clinical research that's out of left field. But there have been some examples of these kind of things being used, and we're going to bring some up. Um, but Chuck Chuck Rinker, he's the co-founder and CEO of Personas. He's got a gaming background. We were talking a little bit before the interview Um I played a lot of, I mean, I was addicted to these games and addiction's going to come up, Chuck, because that's Uh-oh. part of it. That That's part of it. That's part of retention. Um, you want to have like the stickiness to, especially when it comes to patients doing their e-diaries, for example, myself and Katie, she's our coordinator. We were just, we just finished a screening today and guess what? There's an e-diary. And guess what? It's not addicting. <laughs> like, there's no stickiness whatsoever. There's no, even me setting it up for this patient on their phone. I was like, this is very crappy, like, interface. Um, there's no way. This is like, the if you're trying to create something that's not sticky, that's what you would do. Uh, so I'm, <laughs> I'm really interested to get your take on all this stuff. Chris is my pragmatic buddy uh co-host and he's actually even more practical than i am when it comes to this stuff so this this should make for a good interview but i just wanted to kind of get a little bit on your background as far as like what you've done before clinical research and then how'd you discover clinical research like what a random thing to do for someone who's already been successful in the gaming industry and all the other stuff you've been doing like to get into this space sure Sure. No, actually, I, I love that pre- uh, preface you put on this whole thing because I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic now. As much as I was, I'll call it scared a little bit. You, I've listened to you guys for a couple of years now, and and I love the pragmatic, realistic approach. You know, hold people, hold people accountable. I'm all for that. I'm all for that. 
Um, but you've already been preaching to the choir a little bit here, uh, um, uh, Dan. So I, I think this is going to turn out well. Um, as far as that goes, where I was going with um, your, your question there was a little bit about the background, probably the most unlikely of background. I was an old farm boy, um, grew up a cattle farmer in Virginia outside of D.C. And um, early on had an infatuation with all things automated and fun and, and such. Matter of fact, over my right here shoulder, I like to show this to people. This is what got me into programming. If you remember back in 1979, Mattel came out with this toy called the Big Track. And with the big track, you could program it, move forward 10, turn right 90 degrees, move forward seven and dump a trailer. It was this automated tool. And I became fatuated with these little robotics and toys like that. And my father being a farmer and a, a barber um, got me into um, a, a group called um, Navy Federal Credit Union and, and eventually BDM that did all these military projects. And he's, uh, without getting too teary-eyed, he's getting up there, but he said, you know, my son too smart to be a farmer give the man a job. So I started at the bright early age of 16, not flipping burgers, but doing ticker tapes and punch cards, which for those old school guys might know what I'm talking about. For those people that live on social media, they have no clue that computers <laughs> used to run off paper and punch like punch cards. Really? Um, Chris, did you know this? I did. Um, <laughs> well, I, I forget what that was called. There there was a, a name for that. What, what was punch that card, called? Yeah. Ticker, punch, ticker punch. tape with the open reels with the hole punches and punch cards with these little rectangular cards and all the pro one programming instruction per card um, was on there. And then they'd punch out the digital binary code with punches. These yeah. Punches. Yeah, I, yeah. Absolutely. Remember that. So in any wow. sense that the, the, to accelerate the story, because I don't want to take everybody's time, but I started going through this evolution of mm -hmm. from punch cards and ticker tapes to magnetic drives when they were the size of washing machines to, Ooh, the floppy disk when IBM came out with them, the Commodore 64s and all the stuff I got in with military block ops. Computers kept getting smaller and not only faster, which is what everybody thinks about computers, but as computers evolved, they become easier to use for the end user. We ended up going with teletype machines. Then we started looking at CRTs and then we had vector graphics and vector graphics went to pixel graphics. And then we put mice and cursors. Oh my God, I can run a computer with this thing. And now... Fast forward to today, voice first interfacing is pretty standard. You know, I wouldn't say it's a big adoption, but what still misses is that as we've gotten more and more automated, we've kind of lost that human connection. And as a gamer and as a guy who did military black ops gaming through, um, um, uh, of course, the EA sports and gaming. And now within the uh, uh, software world, we do some aerospace work as well. But um, within the pharmaceutical world, we were using these personalities to bring that human engagement back. Just the way you and I are talking and conversing, that's what's been missing from all these wonderful IO2 automation tools is losing that human connection, losing that trust. There's trust no human connection. For me over and over. Like the status quo in research, like if we're talking e-diaries or patient-facing mm -hmm. material, I mean, the only human connection patients have is like us, like me and Katie today our sub-I, Chris, at his site, there is no human connection outside of the coordinator. Um, there's you nothing. Absolutely true. And I'm going to take that second, Dan, because um, we do a lot of trade shows. We started out bringing our digital personalities into trade shows and used them for, you know, um, non-healthcare related pieces. And we found this engagement component. And the anecdote I'll bring up is one of these particular shows we were doing at a convention center downtown Raleigh. 
And when you walk up in a trade show, and if I was to walk up to your booth and accidentally bump your iPhone off the table, the first thing I would do is go, oh, shoot. And I would turn to Dan and say, Dan, I'm so sorry. I dropped your iPhone. I cracked the screen. We had a gentleman that bumped one of our digital avatars and knocked her over. You know what he did first? He went down and apologized to the avatar and picked her up and set her back up. And then after he knew she was running again, then he turns to us. So they truly believe there was a, there was a true human connection there. And I'm not saying it was, you know, creepy nature. And we'll get into Uncanny Valley. Keep those two words in mind, Chris and Dan, because uh, we'll talk about that. Because there are a lot of people that are blossoming in this digital human space. And being the ex-director at EA and going through all the Black Ops military training I went and such, um, I, I honestly say these guys do advanced technical stuff that my company could might even only dream about, but they're missing how to approach engagement. Gamers know how to engage, and we'll get into that a little bit. So that's really what's brought me up to today, which is I've spent a career engaging humans, engaging technology, and making technology accessible, usable, and to use your word, addicting for people. And now we're trying to take this personas brand we built and put a heart to personas and bring personas into the healthcare sector for improving health and wellness and improving outcomes in clinical trials. We're going to get into the personas. Can you just, uh, can you explain a little bit about whatever you can about the black ops military gaming, like mm -hmm. how they use game, they use games to prepare, like to simulate, I'm assuming yep. real life combat, right. Or situations. So at least. So before you go into answering that question, I'm really interested. Um, I'm glad Dan brought that up. The I, I forget which branch of the military, I believe it was the Army, but it could have been the Marines, released a video game for people to just play for free to see if they had any kind of knack for being in the military. Did you have any involvement in that? I didn't personally. Um, if you're referring to the one they use as a large-scale training called America's Army, a good friend of mine. Jerry, I think that uh, was it, yeah. Jerry Hennigan created uh, America's Army. He, he's a good friend of mine, incredibly smart fella. He's been applying some of his experience in AI and human engagement into uh, uh, medical treatment as well, but uh, trying to recreate the physiology of the human body and how can we use physiology for experimentation and for learning about how humans would react to different pharmaceuticals and different treatment plans and such. He's right. taking a slightly different direction, but he, he's local here to the area. And like I said, I, I wouldn't say I talk to him on a regular basis, but every year or so we reach out and, and chat. Um, my military uh, uh, gaming experience was more about battle management. Um, um, for those military guys out there, um, there's three branches of manage of battle nuclear, biological, chemical warfare, and the complexities of what goes in to not only trying to make us more effective at being uh, uh, America's army, if we can say that, and I, and I don't want to get too political or morbid on it, but a lot of what we did too in those early days is how do you take a four-star, five-star general that's in charge of thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of troops and give him the tool sets that can give him this top level 60,000 foot macro view of the battlefield. So not only can he go in and be effective with his troops, but when someone is attacking against us, especially take nuclear, nuclear warfare is a horrible, horrible thing. But the reality is when a nuke goes off, everything from what ground terrain, what, what terrain, if it's a sandy ground, if it's a dirt ground, if the winds are coming from the Northeast, if the elevations of the jet stream at a certain place, 
And now all, all that contamination, as we've learned from Chernobyl and all, has a dangerous value to it too. So if you're having nuclear or chemical warfare going on, how do you keep our soldiers safe? How do you keep them out of those zones? Um, so, so there's a lot of uh, um, um, battle management that was saying, okay, that's a tremendous amount of information, a tremendous amount of complexity, a tremendous amount. I'm talking just technology out the, you know what? Because this happened back in this was back in the 80s, wow. and early 90s. And then, how do you turn that into something that these five stars that are hard generals? can learn and use the technology. So we used a lot of early, early technologies that you, you guys may or may not even remember, but you know, we were using, we didn't have the advanced graphics we have now. So we were recreating simulations and putting them on these big 12 inch laser disc and then taking lower end graphics and trying to mix and match laser disc. You're a gamer, Dan, do you remember Dragon's Lair? Yeah, of course. That was a laser disc based game where they overlaid graphics on laser disc. So we were taking that similar type of technology to Dragon's Lair and using it for battle management. So it's a little yeah. bit of a rambling. You're starting to. I mean, this could easily go three hours and it, it might, but, hmm. and I'm going to take a risk here because I do want to get into clinical research, but okay. I can't not ask this. It's the perfect time to ask this. Chris and I have this debate often internally. As a game designer, seeing the practical benefits of, I mean, you've made a career off of g gaining positive outcomes from game design, right? Yes. To help in real life. Where do you stand on the theory of we are in a simulation? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh Let's just say if we were in a simulation, um, or let's say if we're not in a simulation, the first time someone has one available, I, I'm, I'm stepping up to plug in. Um, I'm one of these guys that truly believe um, all the opinions you form, whether they're politically oriented, emotionally oriented, ethnically oriented, based on the perceptions that you have of the world. And we've already been totally immersed and proved that we can change your audible perceptions you know uh chris is sitting there with a set of headphones he's hearing one thing you know what there could be you know uh, a full round of tommy guns and nine mills going off in his back and he wouldn't know right now if his headphones are good enough yeah and um, he's got a virtual see, background too exactly uh, virtual backgrounds if you have a vr headset on if you augment your reality with an overlay through ar glasses you're going to you're going to change the perceptions of your world and your world perceptions are what drives your thoughts and processes inside your head. At the end of the day, here's why I stand in. Reality exists between the eight inches from here to here. <laughs> That's where your reality exists. And can you fool them? Yes. You can knowing knowing what you know, because you're not the average Joe six pack when it comes to this conversation. Like you're top 0.5% of experts in this. If a civilization's advanced enough to make a simulation and we are the simulation, are there obvious benefits to them doing that? Wow, we're going deep, aren't we? We're, we're, I took a risk, man. Who else am I going to ask this stuff to? It's just me and Chris. Yeah. Um, it's like it's like anything. There's always two sides to the coin. You, you made a comment earlier about I've chosen to take 
my background, even even when we talk about military, and that's contra- controversial to a lot of culturals, and including inside the U.S., mm-hmm. and I've chosen to take the gaming aspect and apply it towards and highlight getting soldiers out of a bad situation safe versus those others, quite bluntly, that use that technology to optimize kill rates. Um, mm-hmm. I've chosen to take this technology that I've used to engage kids, and I'm, I am one of these uh, uh, people that really advocate that gamers aren't necessarily kids. About Only about 30 to 40% of the gamers are under 30 years old. That's, let's be blunt about that. And, and the adults won't tell you that. But to take that and to think that what we're doing is taking games and there's always an educational problem solving to the game. Your mind needs exercising just like any other muscle. So mm-hmm. I'm going to make a lot of enemies out of a lot of parents out there right now and maybe some other people. I, for one, know because I research it, I live it, I do it. I'm an avid gamer. And if you really look at top CEOs and top management and executives, they're the ones that can solve problems. So if you look at the stats behind it, you'll find that almost 60% of successful CEOs play games on a daily basis. Games stimulate your brain. They help you with problem solving. They keep your cognitive skills sharp. So I, for one, go, okay, where does that apply to a positive benefit? Game plan. Now, how do we take that gaming technology and now start applying it to people who might not be games? How do we get people as addicted to their health and wellness and addicted to improving outcomes of a clinical trial as they are about, I've got to get my, you know, five games of Clash Clash Royale in before the end of the day. So that's really what we're trying to do with this technology is take another engagement, proven, proven, proven engagement tool and start applying it to health, wellness, and improvement of clinical outcomes. I know I went to that clinical trial and probably circumvented your question there a little, Dan, but um, but that that's really strongly where I believe um, we should be in our, in our head. So I want to interject two points there real quick, Dan. So yeah. I remember reading a study a long time ago now, it might have even been a decade ago, that um, those who play games, or at least um, games that are structured to stimulate the mind, which most are, uh, either delay onset of Alzheimer's or completely avoid Alzheimer's by actively working within games. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that was one study and it was a long time ago. I'm sure there's more data on that now, yeah. but that's just to back up kind of what you're saying there. Um, and then s- secondly, to Dan's original question that you did uh, very precisely avoid kind of answering. No, he confirmed uh, that we are in a simulation. No, he, basically he did not. Confirmed it. No, no, he did not. <laughs> he says he sees every reason why it would. No. So Elon Musk says, I think one in a billion against that we're the base reality. I think that's what he says. Um, so uh, again, Dan's right. We do talk about this occasionally. Um, while I feel that there is, you know, a, a simulation theory is possible. I doubt it to be the reality. So um, I guess that's what Dan's going for. He wants you to fall on a side there. The, no, no, but you, you're, you're absolutely right about the Alzheimer. I don't know that particular study in general, but I do a lot of uh, clinical trial research and, and more so because um, another reason just to get a little bit of the human interest and personal in here, about five years ago before I started getting into clinical trials, I was still running off healthcare business that was focused our personas business, but we had a focus on pharmaceutical product sale. Um, Ah. But I I was diagnosed with late stage colon cancer and had a 
low probability of success. I'm five years clean, thank God, but it was a, it was a metastasized cancer already. And so I started getting engrossed in the clinical trial world. I'm in three clinical trials right now. And I felt the pain as a patient on what it takes to get through a clinical trial and the amount of commitment, the lack of support sometimes. I hate to say that. There's wonderful, wonderful people. I've got four or five uh, members of my immediate family that have spent their whole life in healthcare and helping others. But as a society and as a healthcare system, we need help. We need to be able to scale to the patient population so we're not treating populations of 50,000 cancer patients a year. We need to learn and get the tool set. So if Chuck Rinker gets diagnosed with a certain thing, I have so much granularity in my health history and background. How do you, how do you treat and support a single patient through their healthcare journey? And so as I went through my cancer treatments and my chemotherapy, um, I'm one of those guys, I honestly, I lost like 80, 82 pounds in 90 days. Wow. So I'm, I'm, I'm watching online. I'm reading all this stuff. Wow. And you look, at least from where you're at, you look thin as is. I couldn't imagine I, you I losing 82 it. pounds. I, yeah. You didn't see me before. I'm also yeah. six. Walking eight, so skeleton. I, I carry a lot of weight. So I appreciate it. But the point wasn't for the sympathy vote. The point was to say that what I started cl- pushing into clinical trials and how we can make this better is because of the pain. My wife's been a two-time cancer survivor. Wow. And every time we have, we've, we've had a little pat, a rough patch for five years. But the point is, is that there's so much more we can do and there's no real need. There are tools available. And to your point earlier, there are tools that aren't five years away. They're not three years away. To be honest, we're probably on our 12th clinical trial already. We're working with many groups. We're doing little things. Um, to, to, to defend uh, Chris a little on his uh, reality piece as well you know i'm i i can't quote elon musk i know he's quoted at one time of saying that you know he believes ai and digital humans might be the demise of the the biological human Mm -hmm. Um, i don't believe that i believe that ai is nothing more than an incredibly sophisticated algorithm and those algorithms um even when you talk about machine learning the machine learning is based on the logic that we put into it. Yep. So the point of that is, is scaling that experience. AI is good at one thing. And if we can start solving the simple problems, how do you reach a more diverse clinical population through patient recruitment? Um, how do you make it easier for a patient to get consented into a trial? How do you relieve the burden of the amount of labor it takes to support a large clinical trial uh, base, especially like when I went through the cancer, there's this thing called the ideals trial, which had seven nations involved, mostly a paper study, but the amount of labor that goes into that and analyzes that. How do you get someone engaged enough that they're going to stick it out for a 12 month, 24 month, or we're doing a little bit with the all of us trial, which is a 10 year long trial with, you know, have, I think they're almost a, might, might've topped a million patients now, the wow. largest, you know, preemptive type trial out there right now. Um, that was done with some early recruitment with the Desert Research Institute. But in any sense, the point is, is let's really start focusing on finding those pain points in the clinical trial process. Mm-hmm. And then- Well, there's a lot. <laughs> there are, there are, but the, with a patient focus and use these technologies we talked about. And we don't try to change the whole process. We change one yeah. thing. We did recruitment one. We've done recruitment in three places. RTI has been a partner with some UNC trials. Um, for oboe, for opioid addicted um, um, 
underserved community, uh, what's the impact on the babies and the parents for when you have a young teenage girl uh, uh, who has an opioid addiction and has gives birth? What does that affect? And we've put out um, basically um, digital consent materials. So when that patient comes up and is being asked to be part of this trial, trust is always a big problem with underserved communities, as you know. Um, so how do you get someone to trust and talk to someone? You know what? They'll talk to an animated avatar. Chris, if you look that up for some of these clinical trials, there are trials done on the psychology of engaging with a human versus an avatar. Humans are judgmental. Humans, <laughs> if you're an opioid addicted 15 year old young pregnant girl, do you want to talk to someone that looks like me? Or do you want to talk to, in this case, we you, you could select a, a young Hispanic girl, you could select a, uh, a young black girl, you could select whatever character you felt that you trusted. And that character would always, always, always provide you with vetted information, only the information that we find helpful, not surfing the internet going, hey, am I going to survive colon, you know, 3C colon cancer? That'll scare the shit out of you in a heartbeat. Pardon me, scratch that censorship. <laughs> um, and then how do you get an empathetic ear that's not going to get tired of being empathetic and not get tired of presenting that information to thousands of patients, hundreds or thousands of patients? So that, wow. that's really the, what's missing in my mind, that, that I'm hoping not the way we can move that needle a little bit with. So in your case, you were introduced to our industry because of a personal yes. struggle you were going through, colon cancer, and then your journey and the studies. And, you know, Chris and I always talk about on our podcast, the most motivated type of patient in clinical mm -hmm. research is a cancer patient. Yep. I mean, they're by far like retention. They're, they're going to do anything, any diaries you ask them to do, they're going to do it because they're mm -hmm. the most motivated patient you can find, unfortunately. Um, so knowing that about your reason for starting this company, um, I think you're positioned in a completely different category than most of the vendors out there. You know, the VC-backed, I don't know if you're VC-backed or not, but at this point, it doesn't even matter because you created this for for yourself basically mm -hmm. like because of the the struggles that you went through so i think that alone separates you enough not to mention i mean are there on any other companies doing similar things like are you focused mainly on like is it recruitment is it consenting is it retention is it patient reported outcomes i know you want to do all of yep. it but like where where are you guys like started Starting great, great question. And um, um, to backtrack a tad bit on you, um, we have been a digital personality company for since probably about 2013, 2014. We didn't start in the clinical trial space. We started doing trade shows, um, retail marketing, digital personalities, um, um, uh, some pharmaceutical product line, a little bit of aerospace. So it was really more about just fun engagement, marketing oriented pieces. We created this high health assist variant. We call it a variant. It's basically a product line based on this. We call it powered by personas. And the personas is a digital personality engine. Think of it as, you know, before the website existed, people created an HTML platform so you could create graphical and text content real quick and push it out over the internet. A DXP or a digital experience platform takes that user experience and puts it into an API platform. So we've done uh, trade shows. We've done automobile hubs, um, you know, like repair shops. We've done airports. 
we were in Las Vegas airport. So we've done all these general digital humans and there are companies in the digital human space. I don't know if I'm supposed to mention them or not. Um, Up to I, you. <laughs> I probably will because companies like um, Soul Machines, um, Unique, have um, quite honestly, and it's it's probably going to uh, scare some of some of the audience that that, that might want engagement. But they've invested, they've gone that VC route, they've raised you know thirty, forty. To be honest, one of them I won't mention who it is has raised over a hundred million. And they've spent so much time focusing on recreating what a human is. How does it look? What's that little gray tint in Chris's whiskers? You know, what's the eyebrow movement? How is the subtleness of it? And they've tried to automate a human. I'm not trying to replicate a human. We we tout we're repl we're human communication versus replication. So, um, and here's another fun uh, little fact. Um, I've been a lifelong Disney fan. My wife worked for Disney. I wanted to be a Disney animator, but wasn't talented enough. Um, I was lucky enough to take this to a guy named John Snotty. He was the uh, one of the senior VPs of Imagineering at Disney. And we used to go down that same route, too, because we're like, oh, we got the tech. We got the tech. We can make it look like a human, talk like a human, act like a human. And he's the first one to say, oh, hey, be careful. You're almost you're too human. You're going down that uncanny valley. The concept of an uncanny valley is you and me and Chris. And um, when we look at a human and you look at, let's say, I always use the term horror film. If you watch a horror film and my wrist turns a little too far, my head spins a little farther than it needs to, or my eyes just start moving like you say, or I'm talking to you, but I'm, my eyes aren't really making the right contact. It creeps you out. Let's be blunt. It creeps you out. And so that creepy factor is is the common the layman term for this uncanny valley. So what John taught me is that um, um, as a lifelong follower of Disney, I was almost embarrassed. It took me a, a talk with their Imagineering group to learn this. You know, Walt Disney could teach you um, um, how to how, that, or make you believe a skunk could talk. He he'd make you believe that um, you know a donkey had emotion, or um, you know in the Emperor's New Groove, a, a llama had a comic comic personality from David Spade, you know, and you, you believe it. Mm -hmm. So what we started doing is going down the road of human communication, not replication. How do we communicate? We communicate through empathy, gestures, emotion, uh, all those things we're doing right now that create that bond and that believability. In the game world, we call it suspension of disbelief. Your goal in a game is to make sure that everything's there. And if anything's out of place, it pulls you out of that reality. Walt Disney was the original virtual reality guy, in my opinion. He created Walt uh, Disney. He put the trash cans under the ground so you don't see them. Characters couldn't walk from, uh, um, you know, Tomorrowland to Adventureland up top on, on the road. They couldn't because you don't want to see someone in a spacesuit running through the Jungle Cruise. So they built all these pieces. And Walt knew that, that you could take people out of that reality. So the idea here is to get people trusted, empathetic, digital personalities that you believe, you trust, and you engage with. And that's really um, at the core of why we're not funded like those other companies. I'll be blunt. I've funded every penny of this um, current venture outside of just the profits of a successful consulting business me and my partners have run for 21 years. That's the way to do it. Much respect. Yeah, we're just, we're self-funded right now. I'm not saying we wouldn't entertain some global expansion. I've, I've You probably noticed I've got a pretty hardcore passion for this. And yeah. I'd love to be able to take this to scale and to make an impact that we can actually you know there's one thing about moving the needle like that but if we could get the traction i'm i'm 110 percent convinced 
that the same way Madden football was the number two most engaging and selling sports title in history, um, that if we can get a little bit number more two, sport, which one's number one? Uh, FIFA, oh, did he? FIFA soccer. FIFA, my bad. Really? FIFA. Yeah, FIFA. That's see, that's our American bias, man. We don't yeah, even think about it. Exactly. <laughs> but think about it, man. Think about it, Chris and Chris and Dan. If we could take that needle, you know, what would happen if let's just be blunt. Let's say we only move the needle three percent. You know the clinical trial. And I do. What impact would that have on our healthcare system and people's personal lives? If you just move the needle three percent. Of course. We'd have so faster, faster data. Probably cheaper meds, if you believe the benevolence of the drug companies. Um, I mean, there'd be a lot. You'd have more diversity in in the yeah. trial, so you'd have better data for all all groups um, throughout the country and then the world. Uh, I mean, even just marginal benefits are huge, like exponentially. Like the outcomes are exponential. Doesn't take much. We we did a piece for Disney. I was as much as I love a Disney Imagineer. We were lucky enough to work with Celebration Health, the hospital that works. Um, um, that I shouldn't say works with. They are in Celebration, Florida. They are the hospital that serves Disney World. And um, Sally Grader was their director of imaging, and she had this brilliant concept of creating a personality because they do a ton, ton, ton of pediatric imaging. See, it's CTs and MRIs. So we worked with a group called Bearfax Entertainment and us for the technology side in the hospital. And we created this animatronic bear, who, by the way, is in my living room over the corner of my shoulder. <laughs> I have the animatronic left. Um, but we were there with one particular goal, get kids through their scan procedures with as little sedation and as little pain as possible. So we would send packages home with them. They would listen to this bear called Buddy the Bear. He would talk to them and he would take them on a ride through the sandcastle. They, they literally built like a fiberglass sandcastle around the magnets, which is gorgeous. And then he would talk to the kids and they would play games. But while they were playing games, they would do this little, you know, MRI sound in their head. So they got acclimated to it. And then when they got to the hospital, they would meet the bear. And then the bear would talk to them and tell them not to worry about it. Doesn't sound like a big needle move, but they cut sedations by four and a half percent. That's a huge operational savings for the hospital. It's a huge benefit to the parents and the pain of their kids. It's a huge financial benefit to the payers. They don't have yeah. to pay for the sedations, which aren't cheap. And let's be blunt, you know, think to pat ourselves on the back a little. There is a very minor uh, mortality associated with anesthesia in pediatrics. So yeah. you like to think along the way. We, we've helped we've we've helped one or two kids and one or two families keep keep you know keep keep their kids around a little longer. And these are this is something that you guys have done pre-clinical like before you got into it was pre-clinical trial it was when we were really in just starting to explore the um engagement and healthcare engagement pieces and we were lucky enough to have some context uh, so do you think there. do you think your colon cancer expedited you doing this do you think you would have done this regardless or i think for, it would have been a much slower path i think um without the colon cancer diagnosis I wouldn't have migrated to clinical trials as quickly as I had. We were looking at healthcare. We were doing stuff in pharma. We were location-based. You know, we were basically thinking about, you know, imagineering for hospitals and healthcare and airports and just location-based pieces. We've done some retail um, pieces like with Belk and stuff. And um, the point was, is that I never realized the demand for the clinical trial world until I went through three trials. And that's wow. when I learned about, wait, all this cool stuff we're doing out there just for marketing and making money 
we could do something a little more, um, I won't say worthwhile. I don't mean it as a, you know, too, too tear jerking emotional about it, but, um, but it's definitely something that um, um, we all know there's um, um, financial benefits for the payers. If we get better outcomes, if we can get, so if we can get a trial started quicker through improving recruitments, if we can improve the demographic population during the recruitment process. And we have done a couple of recruiting pieces. Um, Desert Research Institute I mentioned was one that had a hologram on one of their uh, physical location, one of their site locations. And it would say, you go through there and it was, let's say, um, you know, uh, let's say it was for cancer. You would go into oncology ward and it would say, hey, we've got this clinical trial going on. Would you be interested in learning more about it? So they could just, and they will talk to it. It's just a digital avatar. If you look it up. It's oh, it was like a hologram in the middle of the lobby yeah, yeah. or something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We're, 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 think of it, we're a game engine. Do you care if your game is put on, your PC, your laptop, or it's projected on a theater screen. It doesn't really ma matter what the outcome, the display outcome is, but in this particular case, it was. Another good example was um, up uh, north between Spokane, uh, Washington, and Seattle. There's a community of um, uh, tribal workers, some of migratory, some in tribal, that speak this language called Mixteca. Very few people even know about it. And this population, this one hospital, CBHA, Columbia Health Basin, um, serves that population. And they always had a challenge because very few of the patients coming into the facilities would speak English. And you can't just go to Google and say, hey, Google, speak Mixteca, because nobody knows Mixteca. So we were able to work with CBHA, and we actually taught through some of their native speakers. We taught our avatar to speak Mixteca not full conversational, not you and I having a conversation, but at least saying, hey, welcome. Thank you for coming into Columbia Health Basin. Let me help you get to where you want to go. Where do you need to go? So basic wayfinding was wow. a simple solution. It goes back to the conversation with Chris about AI. We don't have to solve all the world problems. We have to solve those little hurdles that stand in people's way. Right. Just someone that doesn't speak the language that's in an unfamiliar facility. Typically, when you're in a hospital, you're not there for you know a, a ride on a roller coaster. You're there because you got some health concerns, so you're stressed. And I just need a little help getting to the hospital. And that's that's um, another good example of practical yeah. use cases that we've put in place, we've utilized that have helped patients through their patient journey, and we don't have to wait five, ten years for this to happen. So I assume once they got to where they needed to go, there was somebody there speaking their yes. language. Yeah. Okay, great. It was really just to help. It <laughs> great. Was like, think of a staff <laughs> augmentation. We're never going to talk trying to replace humans. That's not our goal. We're human communication, not real replication. And it's really more about staff augmentation, just like you would put, um, and I think you mentioned it, you know, banks have ATM machines out front all the time. We've done a few, quite a few banks, actually. Um, so it's really more about getting that communication pipeline down. Um, our characters currently speak 148 languages, and we do have a patent. Here's one thing I'd love, love, love for someone who wants to do a clinical trial within the deaf community. We have two members of the deaf community on our staff, and we have taught and have a patent. Our personas can sign. We can do American Sign Language, so you can engage our characters with sign language as well. Wow. So we're, we're really all about the communication side. Um, you know, you can. Yeah, that's definitely... Um... Uh, this patient journey, well, I guess before we get there, so what was your minimal viable product in clinical research? Was it this recruitment um, avatar? Yeah. Or? 
it was it was actually a consent product first. Ah. Um, RTI had a product, uh, Research Triangle Institute. Um, their CRO down here in uh, North Carolina. I don't know if you're yep. familiar with RTI. They're pretty good size, of course. Um, they had a requirement. Um, they were building an internal uh, e-consent digital consent platform of their own, but didn't have a lot of engagement with it and wanted something a little more compelling. So they collaborated with us and we built um, this DXP. I told you about this, this user experience platform. So we took our product and we built this consenter tool and then put personalities on top of it so that they used it for early consent programs. We've used it for consent with Oboe. Um, we use it for consent with Digital Research, uh, Desert Research Institute. Um, we've done um, a little bit of recruitment, um, probably not as much as we hoped. Um, and that's then, tough recruitment. That's let's get to recruitment, but the the consent. Let's let's yeah. um, maybe unpack that one a little bit more. So, mm -hmm. when you say you use the personality type to consent, are you talking about augmenting like let's say the coordinator because katie and i consented someone earlier today yeah. so are you saying that me as the research staff member and the patient there there would be some avatar helping me or helping the patient yes. or yeah there's a couple ways to deploy it the most common has been through either ipad or web website so let's say you and katie had a patient that said okay i'm interested in joining um, I'm, I'm going to go through the, um, you know, the, the educational materials, the pre-consent, pre-consent materials. And then once I get through the pros, cons and all that good stuff, then I'm going to go through the actual consent process and get a digital signature and say, OK, I consent to all this. You know, what are the risks to my baby? What are the risks to me? What are the pros? Right. What's this going to do? We even did one. The first one was an interesting case. So let me answer your question directly, then I'll go to the case and give you a, a real world example of how that was advantageous. So we would provide that pre-consent material, but we can provide it in 148 languages. If you walk in and you've got a certain demographic population and you want to talk to a 13-year-old uh, black girl, or you want to talk to a 45-year-old uh, male, or you want to talk to a uh, a transgender or non-binary 30-year-old, we can hook you up with that avatar and you pick the character you're most comfortable with. We even have the older, you know, 68-year-old grandma character that will run you through a consent process. Wow. So the whole ideal is to get you, and it's not a photorealistic human. It's not going, ooh, that's as creepy. You're literally, you know, they've got, if you've been to our website, they're, they're, they're Disney-esque. So they're a little more photorealistic than talking to, you know, Bambi or, uh, you know, Stitch. You're not talking to Lilo and Stitch, but you are talking to a character that becomes representational. And just like you're a gamer, you never freak out when you're talking to a gamer. Mario doesn't scare anybody. Come on, let's be honest. Um, so you have a comfort level and you have a trust that, you know what, there's a study that I'll probably reference to Chris if you're interested, where we, we published it on our website too where you'll compare avatars. And when people talk to an actual human, a digital human, a somewhat photorealistic human, and then this like ultra cartoony character, and then this robot. People don't believe the robot. It's okay. It's just st stupid. It's like talking to a stick figure. People, when they get to the human, they'll trust the human more than a digital human but they don't trust it as much as a Disney-esque type human. Disney so uh, type human has a higher trust factor than a real human. 
people trust the avatar, but they believe there's a sentient being behind it. They believe there's a personality behind it. And it's a really cool study to read because it mm -hmm. plays into the psychology of the human mind. But to me, it plays into, and I hate to pound this because I sound so negative. It plays into the, tr the mistrust that has been built up, especially in the underserved communities towards clinical trials and authority right. figures in the healthcare system. So it really plays into um, improving that trust component. So how do IRBs view this? How are the what? I'm sorry? IRBs, how do they view this? So you're utilizing this technology mm -hmm. for consenting, right? So uh, consenting is a very important aspect in terms of IRBs and patient uh, involvement in research. So what mm -hmm. is an IRB? What are they? So I assume at some point there has to be an actual human involved from an IRB Absolutely. perspective to answer questions. So this this avatar is not answering questions of the patient, well, right? Or is I'm it? Gonna, I'm going to give you a little exception there, Chris. Yes, this avatar can be programmed to answer um, almost 36,000 questions. We've never done one that many. That's the theoretical. But we have mm -hmm. we have programmed avatars to ask two or three hundred of the most common questions, so that does save a lot of staff time. But as far as RRBs go, I'll, I'll be the first to admit we're not a you know we're not a clinical site where we work with CROs and also the RRB review and all typically is handled not by us directly. However, I can say the content when a content's delivered to us, it has been incredibly helpful to be able to go to um, like uh, we do, we've done seven or eight trials with UNC as well um, and say, you know what? The only information that is physically possible for this avatar to provide your potential patient population, your participant population is the pre-vetted information that we provide you. And it's all protected behind this screen code. So like when you go to the um, current site we're doing with the OBO trial, there's no personal information exchange. We give you a five-digit code. That five-digit code is, you know, basically double-blind. And so there's a way to fully abstract. There's a way to fully vet. And that character is only going to answer the character the, the questions that we tell it to. So that does take a big burden off of some of the uh, training and oversight that needs to happen on the human. Uh, 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 I'll call it the preconcept materials. Um, however, when the piece is done and someone's gone through the pre-consent and has answered the questions and asked the questions and needs more information. We make no bones about it. The first thing we'll say is, okay, I've given you everything I can give you now. And at that point to, to Dan's part, if you and Katie are doing a consent for a participant, then you they would hand you that iPad back, but all that information would be pre-gathered pre to be entered. You did get yeah. consent. You have an audit trail there. Yes, you said yes to this. You consented to this. You got this information. But then you're reviewing that and doing the final I signature. Mean, I mean, Chris, I can see this. This could be better than human consent because you're essentially, like most of the questions patients ask me are protocol specific. Like, am I allowed to do this when I'm in this study? Mm -hmm. or And then a human, like especially if it's new or let's say you have a new staff member, or somebody who manages 30 studies, right? Like you can mix up the studies in your head and say, well, you know, I'm kind of new to this one. I'll have to get back to you on that answer. This this avatar can can know it. Um, Not only that, but just general research questions as well can be programmed. I mean, uh, can I drop out of a study at any time? Right. Things like that, right? right? right. So 
Absolutely. I would assume, Chuck, that you're looking for this to completely take over the consenting process at some point. It's just a matter of when will IRBs, IRBs oh. accept this? I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna um confess a weakness. You you guys have so much more experience in the clinical trial. I think I'm learning as much from you guys today as you might be learning from me. But it's those partnerships with those CROs and uh, sites that we need to form so that we can put this to better use. But to answer your question specifically, um um yes, we want to be as actively involved. Our goal is to try to decrease recruitment time, better your demographics make people get a higher percentage of people getting all the way through the trial. Now, working with companies like yours, other participants, other sponsors, other uh, research organizations, other um, research hospitals, whoever it is, to me, we're the digital personality experts. Um, but I do want to make a point about the questions because Chris brought up a great point. These FAQ, I'll call them FAQs, you know, the frequently asked questions that happen from trial to trial. Obviously, we can program the specificity of an individual trial. Um, also, there's a common database. But one thing we do differently than some of those aforementioned competitors that are into the human replication, they try to make things all too autonomous in my mind. We take Microsoft's approach to what we call active learning, not machine learning. Meaning one thing that we do very well and has been probably one of our largest um, draws of our repeat customers is we can provide insights into what the patients are asking for that you might not even think about and your clinical team might not even think about. For instance, when I put up a website and you say, okay, I'm going to give you the choice of A, B, or C. You know what? I can go back to you. Anybody can with standard web analytics, Google analytics. It says, you know what? 74% of people said B, 33% said B, A, and the remainder, and I won't do my math because I'll embarrass myself, said C. But nobody said, what if that patient wants answer D or answer E? So mm. what we do is our characters, since we're voice, not voice only, we, we, we're a matter of fact, we're a big partner with ELO, the big touchscreen company. Um, but as a general rule, we like voice first interfaces. And when people are in a comfortable environment, they're talking like you and I are talking, you might say, Chuck, do you have any questions? I'm going to say, yeah, I'm going to show up at the hotel. I mean, at the hospital or at the site and I don't have money for parking. How much is parking here? Oh, well, you might never have thought to ask for that. But mm. since Daphne, Daphne's who we call every every person, every site has their own personality they'll put to it. I think DRI is called there as Olivia. But in any sense, um, and that's part of that personal connection you get. Um, so we'll listen in. And if we don't have an answer to that question, Daphne or personas in this case would say, well, you know what? I actually don't know that answer, but let me see if Katie or Dan can answer that for you or yeah. we'll get back to you later. Now, the big beauty then is after that happens, we can come back to you on a weekly basis, a monthly basis, depending on how long the recruitment process or even consent or even during um, the trial itself, the uh, retention side. Uh, do you have any concerns? What are your, how, how do you think the trial is going? Those, those long, you know, 84 question surveys I get every three months in the trials I'm in and they ask you the same question six different ways. Um, so when we get that feedback from the client, we're able to come back to your research team and say, you know what, here's a whole list of what people were asking about, but that you didn't even think about. So yeah. here's what you need to consider next time around, or what we can add, and we can build up. So these characters have an infinite memory, or since they have 36,000 questions, and we continuously improve the knowledge base behind these avatars. Well, the way I see it, I mean, it goes even further, like sitting here listening to you, you know, I popped up 
some new ideas, person like some applications I would like to see as a site owner, study coordinator. But the way I see it, this if it's done properly, it augments, like you said, it augments what the staff is already going to do. So in many respects, like the most difficult part of our jobs is to try for us to try to become like, like uh, computers, right? Like let's memorize this protocol. Okay. If the patient asks this, we have to, we have to know the answer. I think this tool is better suited for that. We, so that's more like digital one or zero, like yes or no. Mm-hmm. The humans are more analog. Like let's fine tune when the patient's, ask well this e-diary looks overwhelming that's where the human comes in and say look i could walk you through it it's not that big of a deal those Mm -hmm. are things like the avatar may not be able to do as well as a human so i think those two things complement each other well but i think it goes a step further if you were to build a tool for the site to use like a roadmap for the coordinator right like yeah. Let's say it's a new study. Well, what do you do after this procedure? Well, now you have to go here. And how do you go to this platform? Now you go there. Make sure the IE criteria, like it could it could also augment e-source, like yeah. Creo. Um, I think that's like, those are some of the ideas popping up into my head that you probably, I don't know if you thought of it, but no, it could, honestly, it could augment I... like the actual workflow at the site. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, I would comment. Well, go ahead, Chris, and I'll chime in on a couple of uh, I was just going to add on to what Dan was saying there. I, I see, one of the things that I think are sorely lacking, and I think sponsors and CROs are recognizing this, and has been a complaint of mine since I've been in research for 15 years, is that there is real no standardization in research from site to site, where I think your software here could definitely, as Dan said, augment that, right? Where it's yeah. kind of an overseer of what's going on, and and it can really standardize their approach for all study sites and research, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yeah, the protocol is there, which is supposed to do that, but really it's not effective at really standardizing what goes on from site to site. It Very really true. doesn't. It leaves a lot of things lacking and consenting it would be one of those, yes. right? So uh, I could see where something like this could definitely kind of standardize things from site to site and we're not even talking rating skills right dan where oh, no. <laughs> they, they really desire standardization and they just don't get it from site to site yeah. so yeah definitely could help out there interesting yeah a couple of comments that call and one, one i'm gonna have a question for you gentlemen um because you mentioned something i'll call it the fuzzy logic dan about you know computers can answer yes or no's but humans are better analog. absolutely true however one of our repeat use cases um, we're even in the NHS in the UK. We're in a couple of hospitals out there. We're doing a, another installation, Princess Alexandria Hospital, and we're using them for basic wayfinding. How do you, how do you help a patient at a hospital facility? And the reason that triggered when you said that comment is we've taught, um, um, in this case, Daphne, um, to respond to questions that might not be as black and white as you think. For instance, we do a full, we've been a Microsoft partner for about 18 years. We're in there innovation lab. Um, we've done a lot of the feedback in the retail stores and such. But the point is, is this this concept of natural language parsing and what we call utterance and intents, meaning you utter a phrase, you ask me a question, but what do you really want? If you say, um, hello, it's pretty easy. But if I say, <laughs> what up dog, or how's it going, or something that's a little more slang oriented, different cultures all have different ways of doing that. However, 
the engines that they have back to Chris's comment about AI, you know, how, how sophisticated can AI get and what's Elon Musk's uh, fear of AI um, really comes into the fact that uh, those utterances and that intention can be derived a lot more accurately than you think. The very specific use case I can think of is we had to go in there, wayfinding solution. It's easy to go, hey, how do I get to the pharmacy? Okay. But our system, Waxy, if she goes, you know what? I don't know where to fill my prescription. Or, you know, the doctor told me I need albuterol. We'll know that and be, we can program that. And she goes, oh, if you want to fill your prescription, you need to go to the pharmacy. And here's where the pharmacy is. So you can make some pretty um, extrapolated guesses. And I call them guesses. And we'll get to that in a second. Of what someone's really trying to learn through this concept of active learning and utterance and intent. So when you say, here's a question, you, we, we don't come back and say, I know the answer, I don't know the answer. We come back with a confidence factor. And that confidence factor, if it's a life-saving thing, like, hey, should I take, was I supposed to take 500 milligrams of this or 5,000 milligrams of this? That We're going to want to have a 99.9999% accurate Mm -hmm. confidence factor that we know the answer however if you're saying where's the bathroom you know that's not going to be a dire straight so we might relax the requirements for that confidence factor so the point there is that that fuzzy logic is in there so we would work with you as the site owners we would work with whoever the domain experts whoever the end client would be and work with them to build a knowledge base that gives their customers the help they want, the support they need, but it's going to be tailored towards risk mitigation, of course, but risk mitigation uh, that's appropriate for the use case you're putting behind it. Um, the second piece of the puzzle that Chris alluded to, I think both of you did, but Chris mentioned, is that, that standardization that might be lacking. And this is where the question is going to come in. Since I'm not a industry 20-year veteran of the clinical trial space. Um, I look at companies like, you know, Viva's got their site vault. We've done work with Viva. For Shout out to Viva. They sponsor the podcast. Do they? Oh, that's yep. true. I forgot about that. But we've done work with their pharmaceutical platform. I mentioned we made a, a portion of our profits. We're actually from the Viva Pharma platform. And we've used uh, that money to fund some of this clinical trial piece. And uh, I'd love to like, say, okay, well, let's take site vault. And let's start interjecting this kind of experience into Site Vault so we can be that helping hand through the clinical trial management system and such. We've yes. done it for call centers. We've done it for Comcast. We've done it for another smaller um, 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 call center for a uh, you know um, internet service provider, entertainment provider. But we use it for the call center training. So if you're on the phone and your goal is to get the questions answered to your support center as quick as possible when i'm on the phone with this support and someone goes hey is cnn available in the xfinity plus package well let me find out for you either they've got to have that experience and that domain expert you alluded to earlier dan or you know what he can put you on mute and go hey daphne is cnn available in xfinity plus and she'll go yes it is and then he'll jump right back on the phone and say oh yes yes it is and it's that type of turnaround and now solve their problem on one call quickly get them off the phone get them what they want. Everybody wants their information quick. So that type of implementation within a, a, a CTMS, I'd love to find someone yeah. who has that. So what's your experience with, how many trials are like CTMS is mandatory? Are no. there other big 800 pound gorillas like Viva in the room? Who, who are the, who, no. who are the, 
How does that so work? So there's two. Well, we use Creo for eSource. So everything's digitized on our end. We use electronic source. Um, so we don't really write too many things down on paper. Uh, we use eConsent. Today we used eConsent for one study. And we use eReg. And the e-regulatory is where Viva is starting to get into the game. <clears throat> That's a free solution. They offer sites. So sites.viva.com is where sites can join and get access to electronic signatures, electronic delegation of authorities log, <clears throat> excuse me, all for free. So there's there's a few um, players. There's eSource and eReg for sites. Okay. Built into the eSource, so built into Creo is the CTMS system. Okay. Where you can have your budgets, and then it'll forecast, like, okay, this patient came in, so this is what you're owed as a site owner. Um, e-signatures, all that good stuff is in there. So there's no standard yet. I mean, some sites use paper. Paper, actually, yeah. the majority of sites just use paper source, hmm. paper regulatory. So... The monitor, when they come monitor your your study, they'll upload these things to their system at the CRO and sponsor level where they have standardized. Right. But then every CRO has their own portals. <clears throat> so there hasn't been any consolidation. Okay. Um, okay. But what everyone's trying to do is get the sites, though, because that's where the data originates. That's why there's this yeah. race. That's why Viva's giving out e-reg for free. They want to yeah. be part of the process. They're probably gonna at some point. I don't have insider info. Give eSource for free to sites because they yeah. know if we can create like what Chris was alluding to a standard, <clears throat> sponsors are more likely to buy our stuff. They're already using yeah, our stuff for Susars. They're already using our stuff to sell the drugs. Yeah. That's where Viva started on the sales side. So there is no standardization. Um, everyone especially the sites, you know, that's the long tail of research. Matter of fact, 80% of sites still use paper source, paper regulatory. Wow. Chris can chime right, in while I go. cough here. Go for it. Now, let me ask a couple of minor questions. One, just a pro protocol piece. Um, You said sites.viva. I went to, they sent me to sitevault.viva. Is that the same or is that yeah. different? Sites.viva.com okay. will take you to site vault where you can get your own free electronic investigator site file. Ironically, and I, I don't I don't want to bust chops, especially if they're a, 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 a sponsor, but I, I did sign up for that and I called them up and tried to set up a call and they didn't take a call. They told me I had to go through a site that they wouldn't talk to me directly. They won't they yeah. they know they know if you're a site, someone has to manually approve your email based on like they they're gonna check that you're actually a site owner. Right. They won't that, that just give it <laughs> yeah. That I think that they're keeping competitors out and also just anyone else because it's not cheap to yeah and, and I, I was up front with him i told him what i was trying to accomplish <laughs> you know i've got to but if chris were to do it with his breakthrough.org email yeah in a heartbeat they would sign yeah. up you know they're signing. awesome well, maybe we should talk after the show gentlemen <laughs> <laughs> chris by the way chris i own huh? a site with chris as well um oh really so we're okay. here we're here at yuma clinical trials where we're in yuma arizona where Chris and I are co-owners. We use everything digital here. Uh, the other site I co-own with Chris in San Bernardino, California, um, nothing's digital, right? It's all paper. The, the two other sites wow. we own. Um, the two one, others, yeah. <clears throat> right, the, right. One, the one's entirely paper. The other one does have electronic medical records, but ah, everything okay. on the research site is paper. And most sites are on that 
most sites skew towards would you say from our clients chris like 80 plus clients most are paper no oh, probably more than that it's emr is electronic for most sites now because right. it was mandated by right, right. or hipaa or something but i'm but, talking just source and red. right from the research side 80 percent or probably more 90 percent are are strictly paper wow so see there's a That's... lot of opportunity chuck and actually you know I don't want to take you away from your mission because I think your mission is super important with the patient facing stuff. I think you can do that. I actually think you can do both. I think you can monetize faster by approaching the sites with or empowering the sites with tools, um, especially study coordinators. Like you were saying, okay, you use this at airports when patients or people are lost. Well, coordinators are lost every day in their workflow i mean every day we're lost <laughs> like why well, we don't know where to do next you know where to go what platform do we need to go to right now patient said yes what does that mean patient said yeah. no what does this mean well, their lab right? result was this what does that mean like that yeah. workflow uh -huh. can be definitely be managed and there's humans at the sponsors and CROs that are supposed to help with this. And when you ask them questions like this, like details, they don't want to give you the wrong answer. So they're not mm -hmm. very helpful. They refer you back to this 300 page uh -huh. manual. That's not very good to begin yeah. with. So you're still, you're back to basically being on your own. Well, it's interesting you say that that's, that's actually incredibly valuable insight. Um, because I like I said, I've been doing call center support with these avatars for a while, and they've been um proven helpful for 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 being that resource for the training onboarding and and recurrent training, you there know, you go. Um, um, yeah, for the call centers. So that makes that makes um um perfect sense and definitely something i'll uh, I'll take to heart and look at there. Um, yeah, I, I think if I were going to give any kind of uh, uh, advice on your business. I think you already are leaning towards ICF and I think that's great. I would certainly focus there. And I think secondary to that would be the rating skills and CNS trials, just because they really want kind of standardized ratings throughout the sites. And it's too expensive wow. to have persons yeah. handle the central rating scales. So if you could somehow like have the human raider next to your avatar where the avatar is handling it. And maybe every once in a while, the human raider overrides it. So they're kind of the central raider at their site. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be a huge benefit to many sponsors. That's actually CROs. a great idea. Chris, I think the raider psychometric raider. Mm -hmm. I actually think that's one of the first things that in our industry that can be replaced by AI. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's where yeah. I would put my focus on after ICF is, is on yeah. that particular component. It's interesting niche. you say that because we've had had people use it for you know customer service ratings and things like that. In the clinical trial, they haven't they haven't really um um asked for it. But one thing we do, but they don't know they need it. They do need it though. They yeah. want it. They don't even know they want it. They want it though. I'm telling you. Well, ironically, the one thing, and I'm I'm not trying to steal that point, but um within the realm of what we've done and what's in our roadmap, um you probably already know that. You can analyze person's emotional state and intention, um, not only by facial feature, but also by voice, voice inflection. So we actually have a way of doing a continuous, if you think about the retention side, the customer side of the patient satisfaction side of it. 
Yep. You can actually derive a lot of that in a passive fashion that you, you don't see? require. And a lot of these rating skills, Chris and I are actually certified to do like a, really? like a dozen them. or many, more of these of rating skills. With So we did like PANS, positive and negative symptoms of schizophrenia. It's like a 45-minute right. interview with a patient. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. You're, we're trained. Look at their facial features, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Look at their um, uh, blood affect is, is one of the items. These are things like we're human. We're subjective. We get bored. We daydream. AI is not going to do any of that stuff. Nope. AI yeah, is focused. Correct. AI can do it better. Chris is absolutely right. This is one of the applications I see there. Um and also on the retention side. So there's this whole movement in clinical trials called decentralized clinical trials. I don't know if you're aware of this like movement. No, it's, no. It's I, there's I've a thousand definitions, but the bottom line seems to be the consensus most can agree on is providing more convenience and more options for the patient. So if that means they don't have to come into the office today, but we can still do a visit virtually. Mm-hmm. You know, we can do it either through Zoom or we can we can send a nurse to their house to draw their blood. We have one study that after visit 10, they're shipping the investigational product to the patient. These are all right. elements to retain the patient longer. Now, if the patient wants to come in the office, they can still come in because some patients would rather come in than wait right. between 12 to 6 at their house for somebody to show up. They'd rather just come yep. at 1 o'clock and know that they'll be out of there by 2. So there, But but there are some patients that say, no, I don't want to leave the house. So the, there's this whole DCT movement that there's a lot of money going into that space. Huh. Nobody's really doing anything um, innovative yet. Like, yeah. We're still trying to figure out how sites fit into this. They know that they have to keep the sites because the sites are where the patients come from. Um, but I, I definitely see this persona being very applicable in the DCT space, especially if if you if you're going to start using it for patient reported outcomes. Right. That's there's a lot. Too. There's a lot with this. There is. That's one thing we run into a lot. And I'll, I'll, I'll close on this. I won't dwell it too long. But um, one thing we found is once we released our digital personality platform and everybody started seeing it, everybody that calls us up goes, oh, you can use it for this. You can use it for this. You can use it for this. Yeah. And my biggest problem is as a small company is, um, you know, we got to, quote unquote, pick our battles. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, ultimately, um, our goal is to separate our verticals, our healthcare vertical. And we do a lot, like I said, even in the wayfinding, it doesn't seem like wayfinding, but every hospital I've ever talked to that's put one of these units in place, they find from a patient journey, just getting people into their appointments, into their imaging labs, back to the cafeteria and all without knocking on the door and going, hey, how do I get here? Where am I there? You know, you're interrupting your staff, you're getting lost, you're not going where you need to go, you're not getting there on a timely fashion. The amount of productivity lost in just getting people effectively through physical space has us focusing on a complete hospital wayfinding solution right now as too. So we've bundled up with some wayfinding solutions and then presented our persona as basically a hospital staff for helping you get through the hospital. So my point there is um, just dwelling on the, um, you guys have given me a lot to think about Um um, but I, I do have to be careful because I tend to, uh, you know, want to solve world hunger before too long. many opportunities. I think your mission is great, though. I mean, you're scratching your own itch from 
your personal experiences, which cannot be replicated. And that's, that's a strong enough reason to do this. And I think that's actually where a lot of, of the um, help can, can be used is on the patient pacing side. Like, and so DCT is all part of that, um, whether it's recruitment, consenting, retention, but then you start getting into some of the data points too, like the patient reported outcomes, which are more simple. How are you feeling today versus the more complex ones that Chris was alluding to of the, mm-hmm. you know, psychometric rating skills. I think all of that stuff you guys can do and you can help coordinators in their workflow as well. So I think you're obviously your first vertical is whatever you're doing now, but mm-hmm. your, your next vertical that, and you're kind of doing it now is the ICF, but I would think you'd want to take that over entirely. And your selling point would be, at least in my opinion, would be research naive sites. Hey, you want to make sure that they're following GCP here. You use our avatar. It will make sure every implement every aspect of GCP is implemented. Right, right. Where research naive sites may not necessarily do that. That's a great point. Great point. So you've done the I've never thought about in a million years. Yeah. You've done the wayfinding and the consenting. Mm-hmm. Have you done you said you've done some recruitment as well. Some basic the, recruitment, yeah. Basic that was location based recruitment. Location based. Then what was the result? So that's challenging. Um, recruitment. I'm gonna share I'm gonna share this with you because there's a um this is gonna play on y'all's expertise again. Um I, I won't mention the, the exact phraseology, but th- they didn't continue after a um, stint of about six months. And the company that was involved um, mentioned that they expected the recruitment to be higher. Now, you're talking about an avatar that was put next to a physical receptionist in a lobby area at a uh, healthcare facility. And we got 16 patients recruited in 90 days. Very good. Better than most sites. <laughs> that's what I was wondering. That's, D- that's depending on the study. Depending on the study. Yeah. yeah. Was it a complex study? Like, do you know? It was, yeah, it was called, it was part of the all of us trial, um, which is a kind of a preemptive where they get you to sign up and agree to give a DNA sample. And then they follow your medical history over a 10 year period. And the ideal is to, find genetic predispositions for certain conditions. So it's more of a um, um, preempt, I call it pre-crime for healthcare. <laughs> if you're- Minority if you're report. A, uh... <laughs> yeah, the minority report reference. So, um, I, so that was a clinical trial. So I, I don't have the specificity behind it. Um, I, I was, I, yeah, go ahead. I, I would personally say that's probably about average for that type of trial, 16 patients over 90 days. Okay. Where where they where you offer a benefit is dedication, right? Yep. Whereas the site's not necessarily dedicated, they're busy, they're doing other things. Right. You have this software that is dedicated to this one and sole aspect of the trial yes. where you can't get that guarantee from the site staff, which is problematic in research. Yeah. I can see that because even in the clinical trials that I'm involved in, I'm involved in three of them actually because of my survivorship. Um, But um, none of those three trials that I've participated in now, um, and I'm not bagging it because he's been a wonderful, wonderful support, my oncologist and all, but not a single one of the three trials I'm a participant in 
were derived from an HCP at my oncology center asking me if I wanted to be involved in it. It was me being proactive mm -hmm. and going mm -hmm. out there and going, okay, I'm clean. I want to stay that way. What do I need to do? And so I went out and went to, you know, clinicaltrials.gov and started looking at them and hunted them down and actually actively reached out to the clinical trial um, um, spot, not sponsors, but the, the sites and said, um, um, you know, I see these and I think my condition qualifies. I was disqualified from two, but I was accepted for three. And it's me just being me saying, you know what, um, hell or high water, I'm going to be here in 10 years. So I had to go through that patient self-advocacy to get involved in these trials. Not a single HCP said, you ought to do this, or you ought to do that. I'm not bagging them, um, like you said, but it plays to your point about being dedicated. They're, you know, they're serving patients in and out and everybody's always running behind. And, you know, there's a dedication there that- um, Wasn't it uh, Charlie Munger who said, if you show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcomes. That's, uh, you know, those <laughs> HCPs, I mean, they don't really have any incentive to refer you to a study unless they're doing one. If they happen to be doing one, they will, but otherwise mm -hmm. it's kind of That's the issues in our industry. Good point. Very good point. Mm -hmm. Great insights. I feel like I'm getting a good end of this conversation. Well, us too. I mean, I think so recruitment, retention, informed consent. Have you done patient reported outcomes yet with the avatar? No, we have not. Oh. We have not. We have not described that. We do have a, uh, uh, a relationship we're building. I, I can't mention that yet. It's still premature, but we do have a relationship building with a new academic research center here on the East Coast oh. that's uh, trying to improve their footprint in the clinical trial space. And they're looking to us because of these innovations and say, okay, if we're going to differentiate ourselves in this space, we need something to be a differentiator. So I'm hoping that we can uh, uh, play into that. The, 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 the traction we've gotten in the clinical trial space, quite honestly, and, and I'll be totally candid as Jen just from personal relationships, self-advocacy and being right here in the middle of research triangle park, as we all know, there's a lot of uh, CROs here in the oh, yeah. know, Durham area right here in North Carolina. So it's just having enough people local that I can knock on a few doors and say, hey, let's try this, let's try this. And it's, um, you know, it's uh, not a He's, you know, he's, he's activated it. the robot. Yeah, the exactly. robot robot truck came through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the, yeah. There's so much consolidation in this space, Chuck. Like, I mean, I'm it'd be I'd, it'd be interesting to follow this because I do think that unlike most vendors in our space, you're approaching it. I mean, you're a business person, obviously, but you're approaching it from a personal. Uh, yes. experience that you've had. Um, I mean, I think you should come to our SOS conference. You know, I don't know if you're I'd aware of to. it, but we can get you to come. It's only 50 bucks. We're trying to keep it like super affordable. It's um, well, next year, February 2nd in 2024. It, so not to be misleading, it's $50 until Friday. Until Friday, yeah. Then it's going to be whatever Monica wants it to be, 200 Yeah. 150 or 200 something like that we probably shouldn't even be saying it we don't even know but there's like 10 <laughs> people involved with it price. goes up from 50 dollars. i don't know what the final price is but after i would, I would yeah. want to do it free but people think it's a sales pitch when it's free so we have to like yeah, charge something true. um but yeah i think you just need to like talk to more cro's and sponsors i don't think sites other than academic medical centers i don't think sites are gonna pay for this um right away um just to be honest with you, 
like maybe that'll save you a lot of effort. Like individual oh, yeah. sites won't pay for this. It's, the, this Even is a pitch like to a, sponsors and CROs. Yeah, it's yeah. not a pitch to sites. What if it was a performance based? Yeah, uh, you pay per signature, pay per pay per patient. Well, if it's recruiting, yeah, on the recruitment it, side, yeah. Yeah, 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 on recruitment side, that would definitely work. Not on the consent side, though. No, no, not on any other uh, assessments or or requirements of the study from the protocol, but strictly recruitment. If you want to go at sites with just performance base, absolutely, mm-hmm. I'd pay for that. Dan would pay for that. We'd all I, pay for that. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's good to know because I, I thought about that. Of course, my company's been okay with with kind of a SaaS based model, and in the SaaS world, that's kind of what you do is you say, you know what. Put your money where your mouth is. If we're good at what we do, we'll pay for performance. Right. And that's always been a, a mantra of what I, what I like to push. Uh, I mean, we could set you up with a sponsor right now the, yeah. that that would do this with you. Okay. Um, Spoiler complaints. Uh, was, Dan and I spoke with one recently. Um, I don't want to throw him flat, put him on blast, but he's yeah, always put him on blast. Yeah, well, he, I'm in YouTube jail, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was complaining that nobody works on this side of things. He's the CEO of, I can't remember the sponsor of the CRO, CRO sponsor of the uh, CEO of the CRO. Well, you know, uh, my respect for Dan elevated when he told me he was in YouTube jail. Yeah, I'm in YouTube jail, man, <laughs> for reasons you could probably guess. Actually, yeah. one of don't, them you can't guess. Even I don't, can't. Yeah, but the don't, other one, yes. Don't mention because we don't need the other channel. Oh, no, that's well. true. Okay, okay. Get my podcast you, you, you can censor that one out. Yeah. <laughs> no, so no be, we're, we're safe. Um, one more question then, because you guys obviously have a breadth of knowledge I don't have. So if I'm if I'm if I'm if I'm wearing out my welcome, let me know. No way. So this is the first year I've committed to this enough, and now we have a good uh, couple of uh, you know ten or twelve trials we've done work on we got a little bit of traction and we're trying to push it out so i uh i'm booking a speaking engagement at hims this year um is hims the right out out outlet him the right venue for pushing this type of piece i'm no. not familiar with hims i've never uh, heard of it um, it's like sixty thousand people the healthcare information management system ah uh, okay i mean maybe but it's not a clinical research one i think the main ones i hate to promote our competitors for like the reason we started this conference because we don't think any are very good but for your purposes they actually would be um scope which just ended it was in february um scrs society of clinical research sites would be a good one for you okay um bio and dia um if you want to pursue the um Psychometric scales that the one in Florida, Boca Raton, NCDU, yeah, but that yeah. one's SCRS Society of Clinical Research. Sites. Oh, it is oh, okay. There's CNS Summit, which is not Central Nervous System Summit, it's collaborations in something, but it's CNS, it's like about technology in clinical research. I think, and if you're on LinkedIn, Chuck, I don't know if you're on LinkedIn, are you? Yes, I can connect yeah. you. I mean, after I post this video, this will the actual video will go on Chris and my other channel. Mm-hmm. until i get out of youtube jail so i'll post it today and i'll right. tag a bunch of tech people that you need to talk to oh, awesome um and then our own the sos conference next year in february um awesome. you just want to get in front of more sites more CROs, more sponsors yeah. i think like having this we already use e-consent but having mm-hmm. this as a coordinator if i were to pop up a laptop right next to our e-consent tablet and say, hey, avatar, take it away. I'll just be here to troubleshoot. 
That's killer. I, I might that. even pay for that, honestly. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Chris, like, that's compelling. I probably still wouldn't because I'm somewhat cheap, but um, I know sponsors and CROs would pay for that. Mm-hmm. So forget well, about it. Well, to me, anytime you can get the efficiency down, if you can, uh, like I said, I, I look at it from probably too much of a business perspective, but um, I see the amount of time it takes for recruitment. And yeah. if you can get trials started quicker, that's a win. Yeah. For consent, if you can get... um. Uh, a better demographic or let's call it the inclusivity and diversity play. If you can get a better demographic, I can't help believe your outcomes are going to be better. And then with consent, if you can expedite the consent process and make it easier, more trustworthy, someone who might sit in front of let's let's take the old example of the, uh, uh, the doesn't want to sit down and talk to Chuck as a, uh, consenter, you know, if, if she doesn't have that trust factor or he, Mm -hmm. uh, gets pregnant, be she, um, um, is she going to be less likely to consent? I don't have that data, but I would like to yeah. think whenever I have clinical trials saying that I can trust an avatar and the empathy, the empathetic approach from an avatar over a human, anytime you can imp- improve trust and empathy, I can't help believe that would improve uh, the, the percentage of consenters. And then, percentage of course, of we all know if you can engage Madden football fans for from 98 to 2000, I kept you occupied for six years. So Way um, too much. My parents hate you. I didn't go to med school because of you, man. <laughs> so you can't help believe that if you can keep your patient population in longer and get more more through the trial, that, that, that's that got to be worth something. So so that's kind of where my business mind is going on this uh, clinical yeah. trial path. I think the recruitment side, because once the patients get to the clinic, they already basically made up their mind they're going to do it. I've I mean, I've been doing this like 17 years. There's probably been less, there's probably been a dozen, maybe a couple dozen people that did not want to sign the consent form. Like when I was doing it, that's probably a lot too. Like it's not that many. The batting percentage is very high on. Yeah, once they show up, once they show up. That makes sense. Yeah. Taking the real value to a site would then just be basically the pre-consent informational. Yes. Yes. I think that's where the trust, once they already show up, they they already trust you enough yeah. to do the study. Where do you see most of the recruitments come from? How, how, patient how database. How patients? The it's, private practice. Yes, patient-doctor patient relationship. Because I've seen a lot of these pushes and people um, touting, you know, trying to do recruitment. Even I've gotten, you know, the, the, um, recruitment through social media and such like that. Um, um, is that becoming more and more common or is that just something... I've been targeted a little bit about. Mm, you've been targeted because they're coming to you when the patient database is exhausted. And so we're exhausted uh, here, actually, because the PI, the private practice here takes too good care of the patient. So the, the lab values are not in the range we need. So we right. have to advertise outside in the wild. So in the uh, paper, our ad's not running yet. But here it's like old fashioned. Like we're going to have a QR code in the paper. And mm-hmm. then it goes to our landing page and shows all our studies. And we're hoping to get patients from outside of our practice because they're okay. going to be untreated. The ones here are too stable for a few of our studies to where we've been right. having like a lot of screen failures. Yeah, I can't, I, I can't remember their name, but there was one company. What was their name? That basically we get, you know, um, patient data, EHR data, um, about you know okay you've been diagnosed with a certain condition and then they would do oh deep six ai 
or Deep Lens. That is Deep Six. That's exactly who it is. We met both of those founders. Me and Chris met both of them. Yeah. Chris probably forget, but we met with them. Because yeah, as a matter of fact, I tried to get hold of Deep Six, and to be blunt, they didn't. They didn't return my call. Um, was it the British sounding guy? Um, uh, I'll tell you who who it was here in a second. I mixed but the them idea up. There, my goal was to say, okay, Deep Six, if you pull this patient target, I'll call it a target database of patients, and you know something about those patients, you know, not only what their health conditions are, but some basics about their demographic. Don't you think you would have a a better opportunity of getting them? actively engaged if you targeted them with a digital personality that resonated with their background and demographic? Yes. On the recruiting side, yes, for sure. And that's what you're essentially well, doing is recruiting them from the database. Rajesh Sharman, he did, I'll give him a little credit. He did return one of my calls and we were trying to cook up, but it just kind of fell by the wayside. Do you know Rajesh by any chance, Sharma? Is that Deep Six AI or Deep Lens? That's Deep Six AI. I met both of the founders, but that name, it doesn't sound like he's one of the founders. So he's probably no. a higher up. Yeah, he's sales director of clinical and academic yeah. partnerships. I could yeah. put you in touch with the founders of those companies, but I think you're on the right track. I mean, I actually think like you have a, uh... Katie, this podcast took way too long. So thank Sorry, you. Katie. <laughs> yeah, thank you. UPS store. Store. Yeah. Just, just the one right here, the one by Albertsons. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Thank All you, right. T. See, lost. Yeah. See, Thursday, lost court coordinator. Like, what's next? What do I do next? Okay. Well, the labs. Okay. Now what? Uh, drop them off at UPS store. Because why? Because we the I fancy like tech. The, the the fancy tech thing they gave us never works. Like they're supposed to come pick it up on demand. Well, when you scan the thing, it never works. So we're like, just go five you minutes. Resonate. To yes. You resonate yeah. more, more cuz we did some work with Rico earlier. They have this these this field service group of almost 5,000 field agents that are asked to work on their big printers and big uh they do a lot of um, um non-printer stuff too. Um, like 3D printing. Rico does a lot of 3D printing people don't know about. But in any sense, the point there is they would hire these techs that were field techs. But Rico's product line, you know, they would have 1,500 active printers. So every time a rep got deployed, he might not know that particular printer model. So we would have, he would be able to go, hey, but wait, how do I replace a drum unit on a Rico 636PN? Well, here's how you do it for that one. You and see, pull it out. So that's getting lost, getting lost. I mean, it's just yeah. helping people who are lost find their way. Like that's what you're doing. Yeah, um, that's what the avatars are doing. Whether it's a patient or a coordinator. Today we did a diabetes study. Tomorrow uh -huh. might be a visit two for an osteoarthritis study. Totally different processes. Katie's got to do both and switch her head, switch gears from one to the other. Yeah. Most sites have like 10 studies going on at any given time. Coordinators doing like two to eight of those studies. So, yeah, I mean, they get lost. These studies are complex, too. They're not easy. How many coordinators do you typically have for a, let's call it a mid-sized study? Um, I'm overstaffed on purpose, but most sites have two coordinators and they can do like eight studies with two coordinators. Would you say that's fair, Chris? Okay. Yeah. It depending on the complexity. Yeah, I mean, what's the patient? What's the standard participant population for one of those studies? Oh, like diabetics, um, 
uh, osteoarthritis, schizophrenia, major depression, Alzheimer's, um, plaque psoriasis, anything really. Uh, I'm sorry, I was asking about, the, I'm sorry, my, my, I must have misquoted it. Uh, how many patients are you trying to recruit? Like, is this a ah, patient study, a 1500 uh, patient study? A... 10 to 20 patients per site, per study, okay. so on average. Okay. But it adds up, man. It, it adds up. And then it's not just the patient stuff. It's all the paperwork after the patient leaves. See, that, like, that, re, that reminds me of the art. Being Mr. Business Guy here again, I think through some of the um, airport work we've done, well, they'll have an information desk. And they'll say, okay, well, typically yeah. we have three people staffing this desk. Now, we're not taking away, but what they'll say is with one of my avatars, I can now staff that same informational desk with one person instead of three. Yeah, exactly. And look at what we did today. There was probably 30 assessments in this screening. So uh -huh. after the informed consent, 30 things we had to do. There's a process for centrifuging the tubes, which one to transfer to where, where to ship it. Okay, if the courier doesn't come because the barcode doesn't work, where do I go? I mean, I'm basically was Katie's avatar live on the podcast. Like where, where, wow. what UPS store? Oh, the one by Albertsons. Yeah. You know, but I don't have to do that. We should have Avatar do that. Yes. Agreed. Well, anyways, Chuck, this has been great, man. Well, <laughs> before we go, I do have a question, but I want to keep it on. You, I want to keep it on topic. Uh, I want to keep it on. Are we in the matrix? Though. Did you take the red or blue pill? <laughs> no, it's kind of like one of those type of questions. That's where we started. Okay. Um, so, um, it's not are we in a simulation theory though, but it's about AI. So okay. you you have a history of programming, right? I don't know if you had anything sure. to do with this soft designing and and programming the software engines at uh, AE for uh, Madden. But I assume you had something to do with that in there, the objects, the methods, and everything. Uh, so how close do you think we are to true AI? Right, you're familiar with Chat GPT. Everybody yeah, thinks that's kind of AI, which is not really generative AI. They call that generative AI. Yeah, yeah, it's not um, true AI. It's nowhere near true AI. I'm talking true AI. How? Because Dan and I had another software engineer on here and asked him the same question. So I'm curious uh, what you think. I'm gonna let my head swell a little bit because I, I do advocate that um or promote that uh outside of being that cattle farmer I mentioned from Virginia. Mm -hmm. um, I have double E background from University of Miami, computer science background from Virginia Tech, multimedia tech, uh, postgraduate work at uh, George Washington University, and I even have a 3D animation degree, and I've been a 40-year musician, I've been an artist, um, so I, I do tout myself as, I won't I won't call myself a Renaissance man, but I'm about as, as close as I, I want to be to that that title. Okay. So the point I bring up and the reason I, I background that is because I have a perspective from the creative side, being the director of the Madden. Uh, and the art side as well. The art side, I, I have done professional uh, uh, artwork as well, wanted to be an animator by trade. So I have this pretty general perspective of left and right brain. Okay. And um, I believe as far as how close we are to AI, depending on your definition of AI, we've been there since the <laughs> 80s, quite honestly. Yeah, but you well, have to... You have to program all the methods and all the objects in order to well, come up well, to the. That's what I'm getting at because if you look at the, you know the classic AI, the Turing test. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you remember back in the '80s, if 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 there was this thing called Eliza. Do you remember Eliza? No. 
Eliza was kind of that first iteration of uh, a community of automated chatbots. So chat GPT has been around since the, the 80s. Sure, and it's just more sophisticated Eliza, over time. And she'd Clippy, go, hello, Clippy hello. was in Microsoft Word. Yeah. A little paper well, clip. Yeah, well, the Clippy. Clippy is a, another good example. But the reason <laughs> I say that, Chris, is because AI is relative to the person. To a five-year-old, Eliza was real. Eliza passed the Turing test to a five-year-old. Okay. Will the current AI pass a Turing test to you and Dan and me? Probably. Probably not. Maybe sometimes. Would it pass the Turing test to someone else? So when you talk about AI and the sense that this AI is truly making its own decisions, I'm actually kind of the, I wouldn't say opposite, but I'm of the point that go, human behavior is pretty predictable too. Mm-hmm. So even though we have fuzzy logic in our brain, fuzzy logic, and there's there's even biological chips that are being developed now, as you probably know, um, I kind of think that AI will never go the route of um, Hollywood movies and take over and find humans a threat to there and that they're not supported and adequate because I, I agree with this. Yeah. It's like any other tool. It's whatever you teach it and whatever it learns is what it's going to react to. Okay. And, so uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say AI at the end of the day is a, however complex, however it can self manipulate its own algorithm internally. It's still a input versus output black box. So whatever's inside that black box determines the output, just like you and I are talking right now. What I say to you based on your background and history, pretty complex, comes out there. So so I, I don't know if that answers your question. I don't think we'll ever be there to the same degree that um, two billion years of biology have uh, have sure. uh, uh, improved in whether your religious backgrounds or not. I, I don't think we're going to be there um, um, anytime I, soon, but... So in my mind, true AI would be a system in which there is no access to any other information. There's no access to internet, anything of that nature. Comes across a problem that is not programmed to deal with, can come up with a fair solution to it, right? A reasonable solution. So in other words, it can literally think, right? Opposed Mm -hmm. to call on methods or things that's been programmed to utilize. I don't well, think we're there yet, are we? Chat software? GPT can no, see Jared no, it's, but it's still calling on information, right? It still it still has access to well, the but internet. JP, your boy Jordan Peterson, my boy too, he asked uh and his chat GPT write me a song in the style of like two different authors that he liked, and the AI no no one could have possibly programmed this thing to do it, and it did it in three seconds on its own. So I still, it's still calling on methods though. It is, it is. And see, it it depends. Like I said, there's a lot of definitions. My definition, when I think of AI, it's, it's, you know, it's it's probably more in line with Chris where AI is truly autonomous. It doesn't require any human maintenance. It doesn't require anything to be inputted. It works on its own in the background. The problem with that is you still have to feed it information or else it still makes certain decisions. A classic example is when you gave an AI a machine. This is this is almost what I call machine learning versus active learning. When you say I've got a machine learning problem, I got an AI that can operate independently. There was one classic example where they said, "Okay, AI, you're a you're a little black ball on a stick, and you need to get from point A to point B. How do you get there in the smallest number of steps? You know, you got one or two little stick legs. How do you get there?" 
from path A to path B, standard pathfinding. And the AI, without having the proper input and the proper restrictions on it, basically said, oh, I can get there one step. And it grew its legs to the distance from A to B and then just fell over. Mm-hmm. And you go, well, wait, wait, wait. That's not how you solve that problem. Time out. That's not right. <laughs> so when you put the restrictions of, oh, well, you got to have fixed leg lengths, then it came up with a totally different solution. So the point I'm bringing up there is the autonomous nature of that AI didn't really mean it was, it was the classic work de- definition of AI. It was in a closed system. No one changed any parameters to the system that was programmed, but it was still the algorithm. And we didn't put the restrictions to the algorithm on the legs. So it still solved the problem of getting point to A to B. But that was, that was 15, 20 years ago. And that was an incredibly basic rule set. So to try to extrapolate that into what's it going to be to create human AI, that's why I immediately jumped to the Turing test of what's going to make you think that we're in, you know, that this is truly a sentient, intelligent being mm-hmm. is, to me, just a more complex rule set. And so I don't really think we're ever going to get to the natural evolution of what makes humans humans in the AI world, because at the end of the day, you probably already know this, um, um, your brain is in a constant state of morph. So your human intelligence isn't totally fixed and doesn't require quote unquote human maintenance as they call it, or it's self-sustaining because every time this conversation that you and I are talking about right now, if you are able to scan your brain down at the neural level, your brain's changed, hopefully mm-hmm. for the better. Um, <laughs> but, 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 you know, this conversation has led to a difference on who you and I are as an intelligent being. And it's already changed. Yep. So that's not a closed system. AI is not a closed system like they try to make it out to be. Right. right. Last thing. So I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just just to Uh-oh. clarify. So you don't believe we'll ever reach true AI, right? As you and I, I don't. I don't think it. we'll ever reach what I'll call natural AI. Okay. No, but but, I mean, this is another three-hour podcast, guys. But. <laughs> Why do the AI want to be humans anyways? Don't they just want to use us to create them? So, I mean, they don't need to be human. Well, you've already made the statement that they, you've already you've already considered them sentient beings. That's right. That's right. Well, I can't remember who it was, but in the 40s, there was this futurist that said, we are the sex organs. We are the sex organs of the robots. <laughs> Somebody said this. And you know what? 2023? I don't know. He was on to something or smoking some good ayahuasca, drinking it. You have to drink ayahuasca. Maybe um, he grew up on Pandora. <laughs> <I've> <laughs> that whole planet's alive. That whole planet's intelligent. All right. <laughs> Forget AI. Back to Earth. My last question. Back to Earth. Okay. Because yes, it relates, there's this whole concept of gamification of clinical research. Mm-hmm. So if we can make, there's actually people that were trying to do this to, for retention. Not to give you more things to work on, but that's something that is also very needed in this industry. Patients drop out. Most patients drop out before they finish the study for whatever reason. So retention, if we can improve even like incremental improvements in retention, exponential positive outcomes that can happen from it. Gamification. You're an expert at gamifying things, literally. Did you guys hire psychologist to figure out the right ratio of dopamine hits for players in order to keep them hooked like you don't want to give them the reward too soon 
but you don't want to make it too long because then they're going to unplug the game like my friend did. So, like, there's a ratio of, like, okay, let's give them a dopamine hit right here. Let's wait a little. Give them another one. Do you guys do this? Um, Yes. Not to probably <laughs> the level of, um, of what you think we do. Um, we, we don't have a big staff as psychologists, but we have we have gamifiers. And you, you hit on a term that, quite honestly, I'm, um, for the first time, I'm probably going to say I don't like that term. Um, gamification has been around for decades as well. We used to be called edutainment, then it was gamification, then it was whatever. We call it biification. That's a company I'd started a while ago. We'll talk about, we don't need, now let's not talk about it. It'll be another three-hour podcast. But the point is, is really at the end of the day, um, when people are solving problems, I call it the basketball. Why I'm such a big basketball fan. You don't you don't win a basketball game by scoring 100 points. You win a basketball game by every 24 seconds, scoring two points and doing that more often than your, 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 mm-hmm. your clients. So where that relates to the clinical trial retention and how we attempt to solve this engagement problem. I don't like the word game case. I like the word engagement because really what we're trying to do is we're not trying to turn this into a game. We're not trying to pop you over and solve one more problem that gives you that dopamine release. We're really trying to give you motivation and, and, and compel you to come back. We want to compel you to stay engaged, to stay involved. And so part of that might be offering a, a reward to your point. Um, you know, the visceral feedback of a game is the beep or light flash or whatever, and it gives you some stimulation. And that's what keeps people playing these little games and all. But at the end of the day, that can come in whatever form is going to be important to your patient population. If it's important to me to know that, oh, wait, you know what? Daphne cares whether I took my medication today or Daphne knows that I'm supposed to do my six month physical uh, follow up next week and I haven't logged any of my caloric intake for the last two weeks. So just to give you that little needle. Hey, you know, Dan, I care about you, my friend. You trust me. I trust you. This is what we need to do to get through this. So that's the motivational side, not the gamification side that I think will lead to those long term retentions and improvement outcomes. Well said. Well said. I mean, we could probably do part two, three, four, five, and six, but we can end it here because I got to get going at some anytime, point. Anytime, anytime, my friend. But Chuck, thank you so much. This was absolutely super informative. Um, a breath of fresh air for tech vendors. You know, we don't usually like interviewing tech vendors and hopefully you enjoyed it as well. Absolutely. And, and, and in that case, you don't have to call me a tech vendor. I say, it doesn't matter what tools I use. It doesn't matter what technology we use. It's really about human engagement. So we'll call you're ourselves. Pay, you're doing it. You created this company. Um, it's built out of patient centricity, which to me says a lot. You know, I mean, I could probably lead with that in the title or something. Um, where should people go find out more about you? Should I link to your LinkedIn or the website? Um, or The way I tell people is if they want to contact me directly, like, hey, you know, you're, you're a thought leader here. We got some ideals. Whether you, if, if, it's, if it's your, you know, buddies over at Deep Sick, have them call me on LinkedIn. If it's, hey, you know what? I want to learn about what a digital personality is. You just go to our website, personas.com, P-R-S-O-N-A-S. However, for your audience, quite honestly, I would I would uh, self-promotion here a little bit. I would advocate to go to iHealthAssist, letter I, health, A-S-S-I-S-T.com. What iHealthAssist is, is our 
10 years of building this personality engine, actually longer, I guess it was 2013 we started. So 10 years of building a personality engine and how we've now put that into a productization for clinical trials and hospital wayfinding is specifically with an eye health assist. So if you want digital personalities in healthcare, eye health assist, digital personalities in general, personas, hey, I like what you're saying. Let's 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 be innovators in the space together. LinkedIn's where I respond best. Perfect. Thank you very much, Chuck, and thank you, Chris, as well. Uh, thank Everyone. you, Chuck. Very, very interesting conversation. Wonderful. I appreciate it, gentlemen. I think I learned more than you guys did today, so I, I hope you allow me to uh, ping you and follow up from time to time. Oh, of absolutely. Course. Everyone, like, subscribe, comment, share. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.